Hey everybody, thanks again for tuning in. I'm Willie Romano Pugh. Hey there, my name is Jakob. And this is The Gods Will Not Save You, The Wire Revisited. A podcast where we do a deep read into each and every episode of the HBO show, The Wire. Let's get started right with the introduction where we're in the detail office getting to listen in on The Wire. I mean, it's really cool, fun stuff uh, with Prez and Lester Freeman decoding the pager numbers are the numbers that they're using to dial on the pager i i really like this scene because it kind of like harkens back to some more traditional but still very compelling like detective narratives where they're like on the case (laughs) like really getting into some like neat little clues on how to catch the murderer or in this case like a big drug organization like It's really fun kind of like getting into the nitty gritty of this. This show has like a lot of broad strokes that are that's talking about like institutional and systemic dysfunction. But this is just like a cool little like sleuthy thing that they're doing. (laughs) Even even though though, uh, it, it still plays to the realism of it that this is a really boring and painstaking puzzle that they have to uh, uh, um, endure in order to understand that if they turn the number around uh, that they get on the page here, that the four ones mean <laughs> the four G-packs, and then the five turned upside down means S for stinkum. So all kinds of crazy cool stuff that they're looking into, uh, even though it was probably a very boring painstaking job as prez Belusky says it took four or five hours yeah they're uh what herx's surprise which i was surprised by his performance he's out of i mean obviously lester and prez are those who are excelling at deciphering the codes because they obviously are in the office uh carver has no idea it seems what's going on which is a little surprising too right i mean uh he's all about oh i'm kind of like you were Bodie, and in previous episodes i grew up east side in the projects yet he has like no no clue what what they're talking about as far as dropping off the new shipment i'm not saying that like because he grew up in that environment if he actually did that he knows everything about drug i mean he's a d like he's a deu member so how how even even herc's like well, you see the nuance of, you know, ooh, ge- geography and all that. He's like, I'm fluent in Perkins Homes and Latrobe Towers, which uh, are two projects on the east side. Perkins Homes more like southeast heading towards like Highland Town and Latrobe Homes. He says Latrobe Towers, so I don't know. I know Latrobe Homes are up a little more north on the east side. Um, but yeah, McNulty's like, that's that's what it means to you? And they're... And Prez is like all about it. He's just, yeah, he knows he helps crack it. So he's, ooh, he's taking off. His stock's of, rising. <laughs> there you go. And of course, Carver has to make like a little jab at uh, Prez's eccentricities for, uh, what was it? Like he used to listen to the lyrics of Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones over and over again. <laughs> I mean, this? I guess that was... That was before they had a uh, genius.com where you could just look up the lyrics. 
Yeah, he's like sticking his ear up to the whatever radio. Anyway, so yeah, just showing the nuance of the wiretap and how experienced Lester is that he's just like, nope, nope, this is what this means. But, you know, they could have listened to it 20 times, 25 times, right, before they got it. But Lester, I don't, I think he just, he's been around, so. Well, he's probably, he's probably finally grateful that he has a moment to shine being stuck in the pawn shop unit at a dead end position for 13 years and four months. He finally has real police work to do. Not to not to discredit any like fine uh, law enforcement officers who work in the pawn shop unit. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So, well, the first storyline that I kind of wanted to discuss was uh, well, one that I know you're really. like excited about discussing or talking about Santangelo and homicide and the whole like psychic uh, Madame LaRue angle. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, so we can give just like a brief little background. Rawls is really uh, having it out for Jimmy McNulty right now because in the last episode, he kind of like worked his way up the chain of command to get Daniels to, um, the, uh, vouch for the investigation and that it needed more time and effort as opposed to just making some quick hasty arrests so we see uh Rawls giving Santangelo the ultimatum that he can either give him one murder that, that he can you know close the case on a murder that he hasn't gotten around to or he could bring him dirt on mcnulty to save his job basically yeah um, um just one thing about that uh, santangelo's like i mean it, it i guess rawls has even more leverage because he's such a poor detective i guess he's yeah. okay at closing dunkers which he doesn't even give him a hundred percent uh, <laughs> probability with the dunker, which is, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. He's like, yeah, you'll get like five out of like like Avon Tower numbers, like five out of seven or something. But uh, I guess he has a forty percent clearance rate. Which uh, I mean, okay, just a little context: twenty nineteen, which saw the most homicides in Baltimore uh, history, aside from I think like nineteen ninety three. Uh, when the population was like 125,000 uh, greater than, than 2019, which population was like 600,000. And they had like 348 homicide totals. They had a 32% clearance rate. So, I mean, Santangelo in 2002 is still better than that. But in the 80s, it was, it was like in the 70th percentile department-wide, even though only 40% uh, saw prison time. But anyways, he's not very good at, at present. So. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he seems like a nice guy, though. He seems... <laughs> yeah, like, uh, we see in a scene in the basement of the city hall where the detail is stationed, uh, Santangelo goes up to McNulty at one point and says, like, I gotta go do something. Can you cover for me for Daniels? And McNulty is like, oh, you asshole. But, you know, he says that without realizing that Santangelo is kind of looking out for McNulty, which is, like, one of the strengths of this show that we see things from all sorts of perspectives to know when people are not acting in their own best interests or saying things in their own best interests. So really strong. 
really strong exchange there. Um, but we do see in the middle of Santangelo getting stumped by trying to figure out something to bring back to Rawls. Jay Landsman, I don't know, it's kind of like pretty much jokingly suggests that he go to a psychic to figure to figure something out, right? Um, and this could be like, I don't know, when I first watched it, I was a little reluctant to get on board with the whole psychic angle, but they are kind of like poking fun at it that, you know, she tells him to like take this um, figurine, the St. Anthony figurine, and bury it at the grave of the victim whose murder he's trying to solve. Um, yeah, is that, and le- then- is that legal? Or like, can you just <laughs> dig up things around some random, like someone citizen's grave like that? I don't know. I mean, it's all a shit show. Like, who knows? Like, the show is just kind of like laying <laughs> it all out there. Like, who knows what's legal? Like, everything is so tenuous and like things can be solved with such a simple negotiation. Like, what, like legality? Come on. Like, what is, what is that? <laughs> but <laughs> like, it's, it's funny that like, by the end of the episode, McNulty and Bunk get something for him to kind of save his ass for Rawls, but it's not even the murder that he was trying to investigate in the first place. So it kind of like flips the whole script on its head of like, you know, I have a psychic in my corner, like working for me when <laughs> it's, it's just like kind of a weird coincidence, I guess. Ironic. Yeah. I mean, Landsman's like, Hey dude, what we, what, Ray Cole and I were doing is just like Ray Cole reluctantly gave him the card and Landsman just known for his foolery or whatever, kind of like the real Jay Landsman always playing pranks on people and stuff is just messing with them. But yeah, that that's where they obviously show where Santangelo's like regretful that he even thought about possibly being a snitch for Rawls instead of going after the case, you know? So like you said, it shows that he's earnest in his motivations or his, you know. He's just some incompetent cop who's pissing on rooftops, missing the opportunity to take photos. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. uh, So another prominent storyline, obviously the detail and, uh, bus that they're planning based on the information that they've uh, gathered from the introduction regarding Stinkum's re-up in the pit with the product from up north. So Herc actually understands the reasoning behind the plan of not busting Stinkum right there, but letting him off and going specifically after the runner. I don't know. Yeah. And they're going after the runner because they don't want to bring Stinkum in because they feel that'll just make the investigation fold. Yes. Um, You got some interesting uh, details centering on the pretty cool track that Stinkum is playing from his uh, vehicle as he's being tailed by Herc and Carver. Uh, You want to give us the lowdown? It was a team. It, I mean, it was a team effort. We both, <laughs> we both were like, "Oh man, this song is like so cool that they're chasing uh, Stinkum and Kevin Johnson too." Um, well, I kind of left it, it open. Like, I just put a little note, like, 
what song is that? But I knew you'd bring something regardless. I'm glad we made it, have discussed it a little beforehand, but... Uh, no, thanks. So the song uh, Analyze by Sharpshooters. Um, really cool song, you know. Uh, you can't even... It's from the album Choked Up that they did, and you can't even find it on Spotify. Yeah, so Sharpshooters, a du- I think it's a duo... Supreme and uh, Sure Shot. And nice. We had deduced that based on a, a very particular line in the song, right? Uh, they're <laughs> robbing from Tacoma to Corona, which, yeah. I mean, it stood out to us based on a mutual friend who <laughs> we don't want to do. <laughs> I mean, he literally moved from Tacoma, Washington to Corona, California. <laughs> so it was just like some cosmic coincidence that just like yeah. maybe. This show was invented for us to do a podcast about because of our <laughs> mutual friend who had yeah. the exact same moving pattern <laughs> yeah. as four fifths. <laughs> um, yeah, because I mean, we deduce that the artists are from Seattle, and it's obviously also apparent. Um, Sharp Sharpshooter Supreme and Sure Shot are from Seattle. That's just what it said in the description of the album he sent. But then also, you know, Tacoma being a city south of seattle itself and yeah i couldn't find any corona washington i like i told you there's an apartment building <laughs> called corona um <laughs> uh, in like seattle near uh yeah neighborhood uh, it's by the lake or by the sound or the body of water that kind of jets down into near downtown or it's like north of north of downtown kind of getting flummoxed here with my Seattle geography. I got to get back to the drawing board. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's what he meant from Tacoma to that. They're robbing from <laughs> to Tacoma to that complex. apartment building. I doubt it though. <laughs> Who knows? I got to dig through some, uh, whatever the newspaper in Seattle and look at some, uh, like reports from when did the song come out in the nineties. Right. I was just really surprised when I learned that, uh, because we don't know where Fort Fist is from, but it's like Stinkum, East Coast, drug dealer, Baltimore. Like I never, I honestly had never heard of uh, artists, like hip-hop artists from Seattle, really. Do you know anyone else? No, I can't think from of Seattle? any. It's pretty great song, pretty uh, esoteric stuff, which I guess kind of goes with the whole MO of the show. That's just, they're always trying to stump the viewers even with their with their music selection great song if you if you haven't heard the song analyzed by sharpshooters i highly suggest you check it out at least that track is on spotify for the wire soundtrack oh yeah good stuff yeah so eventually uh they force uh the runner to bail out and they chase him around the pit herc runs chugging along and he actually we see uh Bodie interfere <laughs> so they can't keep Bodie and those two away from each other uh but yeah Bodie I mean JD Williams I'm assuming doing his own stunt there I I watched it in replay it's almost like watching like a football highlight or replay yeah like, he knocks yeah he knocks the shit out of, he knocks him down <laughs> he almost hits like uh I'm sure we've both done that where you know you get that whiplash and your head hits the, the grass or whatever probably got a few concussions like that like growing up or whatever but he almost yeah he almost hits his head it looked yeah it was pretty pretty uh legitimate fall there but anyways they catch the the young 
runner uh and then we notice uh he has an eye patch and it's it's the same kid from the towers in episode two who's uh brutalized by prez and uh lose, lost an eye yeah and um you know i'm very reluctant <laughs> to offer like any kind of criticism about any other person's work whatsoever especially this show which you know is widely regarded as the best show yeah are there any particular Um, reasons why it's just because it's the best show or (laughs) (laughs) and i just don't i don't know i don't want to get like blacklisted from ever working with david simon or something Simon to hear this and like go on an ao despair and like cancel you before anything yeah i don't (laughs) i don't want to get destroyed on twitter but anyway, it is, I mean, it's just, it, it's a little bit of a coincidence that it, the same kid that Prez Belusky happened to pistol whip in the second episode also happens to be the runner for this, you know, huge drug organization that they're trying to bring down. Um, you know, they bring him back into the office and he shares a moment with Prez Belusky where he looks a kind of ashamed and realizes what he's done and goes to Daniels to kind of break the news to him that there, that there, there's a history there. Um, so yeah, it's, it's like a little bit of a coincidence that might seem improbable. Um, it's just a minor, like minor, minor, like, um, beef I have with that. But then again, it also provides, um, uh, a good i mean it it's a good scene because it allows us to kind of remember like oh prez just isn't this like plucky nerdy guy that's like solving puzzles in the basement like no he actually like did some really fucked up shit earlier on in the show that has consequences um and the the writers aren't going to let us forget that um and like lieutenant daniel's kind of tries to come in there and apologize for what they did to him and how they kind of like permanently messed up his life. But Kevin Johnson is just showing that he's not going to budge from this, this anger that he has towards them for, for fucking it up. So it, it does, it shows the consequences of Prez Belusky's actions in kind of permanently altering the trajectory of this kid's life. So it, it's 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 kind of a, a bizarre coincidence, but then again, all the pieces matter, and, and everything is connected. Um, but the, it, there is a a nice little scene there between Daniels and Kevin Johnson. Yeah, I mean, I, I for me, I mean, it shows how it not only uh, physically, I mean, obviously the emotional turmoil and and toll that losing an eye at such a young age and just if you think about it that way it's you know affected or ruined a portion of his life in that way but it's also to me shows how it also pushed him further into the drug game and, and away from potentially what daniels was trying to uh, elicit or you know if you want a, a fresh start you know i can be the one to help you know and he's like are you you're not gonna pit me over some you know, a candy bar and, a, and an iced tea or they were sold out. So a slice or whatever. So it just kind of shows like the, you know, the whole, uh, how the, the games, it's just, it, it's, and the war on drugs. It's, it's, 
the entrenched occupation, if you will, it's just going to push people farther into, into the lifestyle. And, you know, who knows what, I don't know if we see Kevin Johnson later on, but, you know, he's obviously, he's in the game now, especially, and he definitely hates the cops more than before. So, um, but also to me, Daniels, I mean, he's trying to do the righteous or noble thing, but it also shows that he never even went to try to apologize. I mean, I guess he can apologize because that's like admitting, admitting fault. Like prior to this interaction, he does, you know, admit that it's, it's his, it's Prez's fault. It's our fault that, you know, what happened to you. But if, if, if it really bothered him so much, like when he got that call at the end of episode two and, and bothered his, his wife or soon to be, uh, you know, separated from wife, it shows that he never went to the hospital or like tried to get in touch with the kid to be like, Hey, you know, but, uh, it's like if they would have never ran into each other, would Daniels have ever brought it up again? You know, probably not. <laughs> he has got, he's got a lot on his plate, but I don't know. I mean, again, and again, Daniels is also the one perpetuating the problem, right? Because he, he, I mean, he essentially lied or didn't, like the blue wall of silence, you know, he, he never actually reported Prez or right. I no, mean, nothing he, ever happened. He concocted that whole narrative exactly. for, <laughs> for Prez Belusky to, to recite uh, so he could escape punitive action. So it just further illustrates the moral conundrum Daniels often finds himself in throughout the show. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not. Eventually, after this, Herc and Carver get to hear themselves on the wire, and that's like a huge, a huge thing. Um, also, yeah, before we move on, you ha- we had talked about in the intro, um, it's called One Arrest, right? And then I know we had, you hadn't brought up a great point that I want to ask you about. Does this also, Kevin Johnson's, like, I guess we'd call it him being detained at this point? Is he, is he actually, because we don't actually see him get booked, so... Does does this count as an arrest? Could it be a third arrest or? Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of uh, implied. Yeah. Do you think Daniel's let, let him let him off with just like a warning after this? If if he's, it's like he's that kind of guy where the kid can throw back his uh, offer into Daniel's his face, but he's not so vindictive given the context of the situation that he would then be like, yeah, you know what, Carver, like. Let's charge this kid. Let's throw the book at him. Like, he still seems like the kind of guy that'd be like, okay, well, the least I could do then, if he's not going to accept my help or like my advice, is just let him off. Like, we never, I don't know. Yeah, we don't see him for the rest of the show, right? I don't that think storyline so, yeah. kind of so, just concludes right there. Maybe they just got his information and let him go with the, like, well, I don't know what you, he's a minor too, right? So. Like I mean, it, did he, I mean, he didn't really offer up any valuable information that they're trying to get. I mean, they got, yeah, but they I got mean, the money, they got the money from him. So, well, was it, was or it the, money or the drugs, or they got, right? the, they got, because, yeah, they got drugs off of him. Because four G packs, I mean, if you get caught with that amount of drug, that's, <laughs> that's a massive amount. That's like a huge mandatory minimum, right? Especially around that time. If it's like, you know, I mean. Yeah, that, that'd be it. I mean, that's a, a lot of jail time if he gets prosecuted, but uh, we don't really know. But anyways, brings up, like you said, a lot of 
uh, you know, ties a lot of things together to keep us thinking. So, but yeah, like I said, Hur- Hurricane Carver get to gleefully hear their, uh, <laughs> their exploits and how everyone, you know, in the pit hates them and da da da. And they're like feeling good about, wow, this investigation, like I'm actually like people are talk <laughs> they're talking about us out there, even though they, you know, they, they call them him, ugly. Yeah, he's ass ugly and the skinny, the other skinny guy. So, um, I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty funny that they like even with that they feel validated <laughs> because they just tear. I mean, they're just shit. Like, I don't know, man. They're they're not the greatest uh, cops, but well, Car- well, as we we said, Carver yeah, evolves he, over the show. But... Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, in the context of this, it's like <laughs> such a small. Uh, I mean, it's a huge fine, but I mean, they obviously were assisted massively by the wire. And it's like Freeman is usually so like, you know, business oriented and like all about the details and wanting to move things further. And he basically like just called them in there to be like, hey, look at this. Isn't this funny? Like bringing it in as a little joke, which I thought was neat. Yeah. Hey, it's like a team building at the office or something. Anyways, uh. So, uh, Phelan and, uh, Jimmy and Bronnie Perlman have a, a little meet about, uh, the case and, you know, trying to, how, how does it, I mean, because he didn't, Jimmy didn't want to go to Phelan about the potential demise of the, of the wiretap, but they're still there talking to him. Right. I mean, well, I think it, he's kind of like armed with Perlman at his side to give his, uh, his request more legitimacy because McNulty already feels pissed off at him because he probably uh, <laughs> outed him to the press about the murder of William Gant. So he's a little wary about all of that. Um, and this is also the first time um, Rhonda Perlman is talking about all the different local businesses that Avon Barksdale has his hands in. This is the first time we hear of the funeral home, right? Yeah. That takes that uh, plays such a big part in seasons two and three. I I totally missed it. Uh, yeah, I never. The I first time that. I watched it, it's like they are planting seeds so early on in the in the show. It's really amazing. Pretty crazy. And the second time we heard about the tow trucks, right? They really drive that point home. They're like, this time she said, like, AAA or something? Or I don't know. Yeah. Did they mention the copy shop, too? Or the print shop? I didn't hear the print shop yet. Yeah, so they hashed that out uh, regarding the case. But then Phelan is, uh, I mean, he's, like, taking all these shots at Jimmy and like, a whatever way to try to impress ronnie or yeah well yeah he's like doing the low blows making fun of his spelling and grammar (laughs) it is pretty egregious i mean you're you're a detective and it's like you can't even then and then i mean i guess that's like the whole thing with simon cops used to know how to write and then they stopped doing an exam there used to be like an exam for cid back in the day where yeah you had to pass something but then just became more about like a Presbolewski situation, like nepotism, you know, like it's purely political. It, there isn't really a merit, but obviously Jimmy's like smarter than the average cop. But yeah, Phelan's really uh, digging at him for that kind of stuff, especially. He misspelled culpable. Yeah, culpable. 
but then he uh, kind of, you know, shows Jimmy like maybe in some weird apology or, you know, they have a nuanced relationship. He's like, no, just it's all, uh, you know, just just come sit for a while. And then he gets all like creepy judge, like about how he wants to bang Ronnie and this and that. Which yeah, predatory. I mean, he kind of knows, right, about Jimmy and Jimmy and. Uh, Does he? I don't, he? You don't think because he's like trying he to rub says, it in? Or but maybe because he, he said he because he says like, don't you think? Wouldn't you or something? Maybe. So I don't know if he does. He know? Maybe maybe that's yeah. I mean, because Jimmy's like, ah, oh, man, come on. But because uh, I can't, I can't imagine like. Ron Ronda's pretty ashamed to be like associated, yes. like romantically associated with McNulty, right? So she probably wants to keep it on the down low. Yeah, the first we see of uh, Judge Phelan the Creeper. Yeah, I mean he, like in the first episode, we talked a little about about how he made some really weird like sexual comments, but it wasn't specifically directed at. Excuse me. At anyone in particular, especially a woman who had just been sitting in his office. So, uh, pretty weird, but yeah. So you want to talk about, uh, Bunk and McNulty here? They're doing some, uh, homicide, uh, work, retracing the Gantt murder back to the, um, projects where, uh, the scene of the crime. And this is like another thing they, uh, they help an old, like a older lady with her groceries, like getting it onto the curb. Um, and she says like, oh, you, you two must be cops, right? Cause you hear about the murder and it's kind of like, he says like, I'm afraid so like you, f- you found us, but it wouldn't it also be like, kind of like an obvious, uh, thing that she'd be able to tell that they were cops that they both have like gut like holsters with guns in them like on the sides of their pants so like it's not that big of a yeah i mean she surprise. knew right because she's like oh a black guy and a white guy down here in the projects like dressed like you i mean you know it's kind of why she's a little wary when they offer her help because she doesn't want to be seen with them you know because i mean obviously what just happened, uh, regular, you know, the maintenance man, pretty much. Yeah. He just got murdered for helping out. Um, but she's, I mean, did you, do you know anything about who the actress is or her background? Cause she's a really, I mean, she does a really great job. I mean, just for such a small scene, but I mean, she's kind of like scene stealer, just the emotion she invokes in recounting the story and how, um, and she's also like in the worst apartment to co- like collaborate with the cops because her window's literally facing the courtyard where it happened or the the parking lot. But well, it's like such a f- fine line because she wants to be helpful to them um, because you know it's, it's a terrible thing what happened. Uh, you know, regular working man got killed. But at the same time, she knows like how ineffective. She probably knows how ineffective the police can be um, in this area in this situation of taking down like these, you know, vicious killers. So she doesn't want to get caught in the middle of it. So it's really great how she kind of like um, 
walks that fine line. Lizan Mitchell or Lizan Mitchell, L I Z A N. I I think that's I can't I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but um oh, on IMDb works. she's on IMDb she's just listed as shooting witness. So Wow. Yeah, great job, Lizanne or Lizanne Mitchell. Um also, yeah, I mean uh McNulty hands her his card. It's like if you have any troubles, you know, just just give us a call. You know, we'll be happy. But it's kinda like, okay, McNulty, I mean, yeah, you have this you know, where like awareness and you're such a, you know, you're natural police. But I mean, we've seen a few times, uh, when he's like Tawanda who, or whatever, like, would he really remember exactly, uh, you know, this lady. And I mean, it's, you know, pretty fresh, you know, it's a, on the front burner, so to speak, but not to mention that he's kind of like leaving a paper trail to, you know, just leave evidence out there that she talked to yeah, police. She, her, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be hard for the those guys to break into her apartment if they saw her work got back to them and get proof then. But, you know. Also some really, really great acting by Wendell Pierce here when he he gets frustrated that, you know, she wouldn't be willing to testify or, you know, she might not be giving as much information as she knows. But at the same time, he's very understanding of the situation that she's in. And he just like, he gives a resigned, like, it's all right. You did good. Like, no, it's really, I felt that emotion right there. He's such a great actor. I loved it. Okay. So after this, uh, I mean, just continuing along here with, uh, you know, McNulty, Bunk, they go to some bar, right? And we were trying to figure it out. It's like, uh, is it called Pete's or something on in the in the shot? It's it, I think it's uh, I think it's on uh Broadway in Locust Point. I mean it makes sense like uh the music and the and the and the crowd at the bar. It's like Locust Point's, you know, like uh, the land of the stevedores, kind of Billy Land. It's kind of like a it's not it's not necessarily the usual cop bars that they go to or like a bar Lester would go to with like blues or jazz or something. It's very, uh, what, what's that? You have, you have some more Intel for us, correct? Regarding the, uh, the music that's, that's playing that bunks, not, not necessarily the biggest fan of. Well, he wants to, he, <laughs> yeah, he wants, it's like, it's my turn, you know, at the jukebox and some, some ladies checking out while his wife's down in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, yeah, because they're arguing about like you know they should have they should be at a different bar like who got to pick what bar they're going to, and the soundtrack credit that's listed on IMDb, and I'm pretty sure it's this this location where the song is played. It's called "You're the Reason Our Kids Are Ugly," <laughs> so by Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn. So, <laughs> yeah. Conway Kind of, kind of a weird, weird little redneck bar. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Billy Land, man. Uh, but th- this is uh, part a part of this bar scene is where they get really well. Not only do they get really wasted, they uh, had the famous interaction with McNulty talking about how. You know, Bunk was gentle with him in his first time when it was his time to fuck him. It's kind of the first time you watch, you're like, wait, what the hell? Like, oh, okay, I get it. But yeah, this is another uh, callback to 
T.P. McLarney and his partner, Bob McAllister, who uh, I think this, I think McLarney says it to McAllister, and I'm pretty sure his first name's Bob. It's like the same duo with the whole opening scene and This America and all that good stuff. Just what to, else? What else? I mean, got, you got something uh, for us about that, about that interaction? Just that they're really great. Uh, Dominic West and Wendell Pierce are really great at playing drugs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're so excellent at slurring their speech and demanding women take off their clothes and, you know, slamming their hands down on the counter and being buffoon, like just being general buffoons. It's uh, Puking. it's really amazing. Remember yeah. bunks would get projectile on? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, because I read uh, all the pieces matter, right? They they talked about how uh, Dominic West said that he really only got drunk. Well, obviously, I mean, he's a professional actor. You, you can't drink even when, you know, it's like, you know, the whole deal. But yeah. uh, apparently he was only drunk during his, uh, you know, the eulogy scene or his wake at Cabin. That's right. Like he was just, everyone, I guess, was drinking and he was he said he was pretty hammered laying on the the whatever the billiard table but yeah the first right. few times i watched him I'm like i'm like these guys man they gotta be drunk right or i mean obviously that was a long time ago i had no idea how acting works still don't but <laughs> yeah pretty damn good i mean how do you is it just like a experience like dominic west is a drinker wendell pierce is a drink or it's like i don't know they're just really good actors probably <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Richard Burton, that really famous actor, he's a notorious alcoholic and would get drunk for every scene that he would act in, except for when he was playing a drunk. Ah, okay. <laughs> I don't know. The more you know. So, yeah, I mean, we see a, a court a courtroom set up. Kima's there with uh, Bubbles doing a solid for Johnny, right? Johnny... Uh, is the benefactor of Bubbles' ability to, uh, you know, provide excellent intel, thus uh, warranting Kima telling the prosecutor to let him off with simple, simple charge, which leads to uh, him having to go to, uh, you know, a rehab um, or an a NA meeting where he gets a signature, but they actually have to stay, and this has a huge... You know, we'll see a, a huge impact on Bubbles, uh, even though they were just there really for a signature. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the and that courtroom scene, again, just kind of like proves how like malleable the the whole like legal system yeah. is. <laughs> that Kima just like goes up to the prosecutor and he's like, hey, can you do me a favor? Like, I need this guy. Like, I need to use him to my advantage. So can you just like you know, work a little magic for me here, just showing that, like, nothing is really just, or... Yeah, I mean... I don't know. This, war, everything is... It's like a, yeah. the war on drugs is just... I mean, his rap sheet, Johnny's, is huge. I mean, it's like... Yeah, it was like dope, coke, coke, dope, larceny, dope, coke, like... Shop, <laughs> yeah. like, whatever, theft, like, dope fiend crimes, but... I mean, yeah, it just shows how... And then how Johnny's attempting to pretty much just manipulate. They're just their whole plan is just to manipulate then the relaxed punishment that he does receive. Even though I mean, he's a nonviolent drug offender, so maybe this is Simon's like, uh, you know, his his 
the war he rages against the drug, the war on drugs or drug war, whatever. He, but uh, yeah, pretty. I mean, again, I also forgot how soon Waylon, who's a really phenomenal character played by right. Steve Earl, we'll talk about in the rehab, yeah. the rehab meeting that they yeah, go like, to. Yeah. Or the it was like NA yeah. Narcotics Anonymous. Yeah, yeah. But he's such a. I mean, yeah, his his acting as a. I mean, he's talking about his road to recovery, but he hasn't been clean that long in the story he's telling. Right, and it's so like it's so right. vivid and just it's just like man, is is Steve Earl? Is he? Do you know about him? Does he do drugs? Yeah, or, yeah. He's, I'm, he's like a, a recovering addict. Yeah, too, right? I think. Hold on, let me. Because he's like got the twitch, and he's like got that. Billy hillbilly draw like he's is that the first time we hear a real a good balmer <laughs> yeah the good balmer yeah, like, um, balmer so from the trivia section on imdb Waylon, the character played by steve earl was a real recovering drug addict in 1993 steve was arrested for possession of heroin and in 1994 for cocaine so one of the instances where they use non-actors really effectively, I feel, because it's such a, this um, Narcotics Anonymous meeting scene is really uh, such a crucial seminal scene, I feel like, throughout the show that really sets up um, Bubs's whole dilemma throughout the run, where he, he, he's starting to have his eyes opened up to the possibilities of getting sober and living clean because, you know, there are so many people there that he recognizes that he just assumed would either be dead or locked up. And he sees that there is a possible path to, I don't want to say salvation or whatever, but he, he sees a, he sees a way out of this possibly, even though the, the road might not be as linear as he's hoping it to be because he, he struggles throughout the show. Also, uh, Steve Earle, the guy who plays Waylon, he does the theme song for season five. Yeah, I mean, he's a pretty accomplished musician. Also, acts in Treme later on. But just, um, he talks about one of the sicknesses or the drug-induced issues he has, endocarditis. And I know we have been talking about the coroner like we do with, I mean great show but uh it made me think about fat kurt and we were talking about like how uh, tough it is to watch you know i mean clark peters does an amazing job but it's like seeing him play that character and then lester freeman you're you're kind of just like wow it's like relieving almost like because the corner is so hard to watch uh with all the drug addicts and their different yeah the the health issues they're dealing with but I was like, is that what he had? Endocarditis, but it's called lymph- lymphedema that causes the swelling. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's so brutal. Yeah, it's crazy. But, uh, I mean, it's just interesting to see, um, a lot of the actors who are both in the corner and the wire kind of like flip, you know, they have a, a role reversal basically, like, uh, Corey Parker Robinson, who plays Sidner in this show, was a drug dealer in the corner, uh, Lester Freeman, you know, fat Kurt and, um, uh, uh, Lance Reddick and his wife were both on the other side of the law in the corner. So, yeah. And then even when we get, um, you know, later on in the episode, when we run into day day, 
who is a uh, you know kind of a little drug runner for for Clay Davis. He was an addict in the like he was a hardcore addict in the corner. So even though he might not be like on the total opposite end of the spectrum, there's still like interesting power shift that he's playing with between those two roles. Very yeah, strong strong uh introduction to the world of you know recovering addicts and if you hadn't you know had any experience seeing things like this prior to the wire i mean it's like the uh most realistic place i mean a lot of those people are probably real life recovering yeah so but yeah bubs does something that surprises johnny where he uh he's like feeling all the love for everyone who's going up to collect their tokens. And then he just jumps up and like rebels in the applause. And and then Johnny's like, we just like blasted off this morning. What are you doing? You're not 24 hours clean. And then in the next scene, he's like making fun of bubbles while they're tying off or whatever, but bubbles, he's still holding his, uh, his token, his desire, his desire to live token. Yeah. So, you know, his plants, Pretty big, pretty big seed there. Um, all right, want to talk about the uh, fundraiser? Uh, That's right. <laughs> another we go to. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, just like uh, a little background, kind of introducing the whole political angle already, right? It's the first time we see State Senator Clay Davis. Oh yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, it's like a pretty high-end fundraiser too burrell says to daniels five hundred dollars a plate right which man that's uh but mm-hmm. you know his wife's there too uh she's wait what marla's on the because i was just going to jump into the whole clay davis thing but what is what committee is, does it have to do with something an environment or the environment like the oversight committee she's on or like you said, first introduction to Clay, and I was going to give a little background on on him. I'm, obviously, we got like plenty of time and a whole season to discuss him. But when Burrell says, "Oh, that's uh, Clay Davis Daniels," you don't know him. He's the uh, state senator representing the 39th district. I was like, "Where have I heard that?" And then I remember that. Uh, I, I mean, I always like have my suspicions about who inspired clay davis and i think that one of them definitely is larry young who is a uh he was a state senator um who represented the 39th district of maryland from i think 88 to 1992 and uh definitely i could see a lot of parallels because while a very prolific politician in maryland um and and around baltimore he had like a 24-year legislative career uh if i recall correctly larry young he was also involved in all sorts of crazy corruption like in 98 he actually got brought up on all these bribery charges and relating to the um relating to the positions that he was holding like and one of the committees that he um he oversaw he was actually i think the first black man on the general assembly to head a major committee and it was the environmental matters uh committee or the oversight regarding that uh and yeah he 
I think at the time Simon was writing Homicide in 88, Larry Young was involved in this, like, I mean, not taken away from all his accomplishments by just going into like all the crazy things he was implicated in, because he did have, a, like I said, a very long and prolific political career. Um, yeah, he, he like fabricated a story about being kidnapped after getting into a fight where he allegedly hit his one of his aides with like a, a beam, like a wooden board or like two by four or something where they're probably having a personal dispute, like maybe over a woman or something. And then he said that three, like some guys took him in a white van up to like a park and uh, dumped him out. But then Donald Warden, who McNulty, uh, McNulty yeah, had mentioned was involved in the John Bailey homicide back in episode five was the detective who got pulled uh begrudgingly from the street you know working homicides to investigate this really powerful state senator in this crazy crime uh that obviously was a farce when he admitted you know it wasn't true once the police and the mayor got involved in looking into it but uh yeah and we'll have like i said plenty of time to dissect clay and the comp his character composition but definitely related to Larry Young in a lot of ways. I I also think this is a really interesting scene to show more of a Daniels's character dynamic because um <laughs> Burrell is kind of quizzing him on like, you know, who who is that person? Would you like he says like, "Oh, I might not even like recognize the mayor if I saw him." You know, for somebody who's so ambitious and is trying to climb the ladder um he finds himself maybe more comfortable with the drivers in the kitchen watching the baseball game <laughs> so much to the point that uh day day uh asks him who who's he who's he driving for <laughs> yeah the uh is is it though like i mean he's obviously like shows like he's with it you know he's obviously has experience as a cop being on the street and he's got like the whole you know handshake down to the t and all that but also do you think like he's maybe uh setting a little trap there for for day day or do you think he's just like kind of bored and like ah, oh, these political people like let me just mess with this guy a little bit or see what see what see what he might uh you know open up about and then he's just like going along with day day's plan to rob the house like he's just like oh okay yeah 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 and then he just totally uh flips the script <laughs> they usually call me lieutenant yeah <laughs> yeah but also what do, what do you make of uh burrell and daniel's talking about uh yeah like you mentioned he obviously yeah he has his some aspirations to advance but uh, Burrell says something like there's a thin line between uh, an ad and a photo photo array or something. So it's kind of like, oh, this is, is this the other thin line? But they're in the context of the upper echelons of uh, the Baltimore bureaucracy. I don't know. Because we'd heard Bubbles talk about, like, obviously in a street uh, context. But yeah, I mean, they don't want to make, they don't want to like seem like they're fabricating this political op, op, opportunity. It's got to be like a more natural feel to, to their, uh, you know, whatever 
their marketing approach, which is why they're paying all this money, I guess, to, to potentially get some photos they could sneak in. So, I mean, in a time with no social media, you got to, right? Yeah. This is the price you pay. Smooch. Yeah. Uh, Burrell mentions that he has to go kiss some senatorial haunches. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, that, that, when he... Because they say uh, Frankie Faison. If I'm yeah, I was just, that, yeah. He yeah. says he's like the funniest uh, actor out of everyone, really. And he's kind of got that, like, like you could. T- I bet you, I wonder how many times they had to run that that particular <laughs> line. Because, like, you could tell Daniels wanted to, like, Lance Reddick probably was trying to hold it together. Because he gives that, like, initial, like, statement, like you said. And then he does some weird, you know, act out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's also interesting to note, like David Simon uh, had talked about in some like uh, writer's commentary, I think it was on the pilot episode, that Lance Reddick is so good at playing like the buttoned, buttoned down, like authoritative type um, that when he, when he smiles, you're like, oh, wow, that's, that's such a relief. He has such a nice smile. (laughs) Like, I can, like, I'm, this guy is so much more relatable than I thought. So D, D goes to see uh, his uncle at Orlando's, right? They're kind of calling a, a meeting after the uh, major loss they've now taken. On his way up the stairs, Orlando's just like creepily sitting alone at the <laughs> at the bar <laughs> with all the bar stools. Like, I mean, obviously, it's daytime and the uh, bar's club's not open. So he's like, hey, D, let me holler at you. Like, I mean... Just there, like, I mean, D'Angelo just, <laughs> well, maybe it, that whole weird uh, interaction propels him to, to behave or act in, in the manner which we'll discuss here once he gets up top with upper management or the, the leaders, the boss. But yeah, I mean, just, uh, is this another, <sighs> I don't want to say like a lazy little plot line, but it's like. Obviously, D'Angelo and Orlando, Orlando's plan is going to play a huge part in uh, continuing the investigation or providing details, his, his inability. But, I mean, they've been setting this up, and it's kind of like, okay, come on, guys, really? What do you think? I, don't, I know you don't want to criticize anyone, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean... Clayton LeBeouf, the guy who plays Orlando. Oh, yeah, yeah. There you go. He, <laughs> I, knew you I mean, I get, I get really lazy. Le, LeBeouf. I mean. I'm not. I, I might be butchering that name. LeBeouf. I mean, how, it's is it L, spelled like LeBeouf. L e b o u e f. Buif. I'm not. Yeah, LeBeouf. Right? Like, like uh, I don't know. Um, Le, but <laughs> another like interesting. Uh, performance that shows his range from the corner you know in the corner he's like a reformed drug addict who's taking oh. his sister under his wing and like you know trying to help fran boyd out a lot and oh, has a lot of like wisdom yeah but the the in this uh in this show he's like obviously such a doofus <laughs> and it's like i feel like anybody who is even watching this show for the first time as soon as he tries to pull d'angelo's coat to something or whatever he says like anybody could just be like oh that guy's gonna die (laughs) like of course this guy is like going way out of he's like um shooting going way out of his uh his comfort zone or 
trying to play way out of his league. So is that an intentional device they use where it's a show that's so unpredictable or in depth where you never really know what's what's going to happen or i mean is it is do they kind of set these easily uh like easy detected detectable uh like traps for you or or it's like okay this guy's gonna you know well i don't know mess it up or i mean i don't know they i think they just try to follow the the arc of realism as close as possible um i mean there are some like surprises along the way like um as you know i tried to get my roommate to watch this show and his (laughs) initial breaking bad Bad is an incredible show don't get me wrong but um (sighs) but like he like he was just like oh bubs is gonna die i'm sure of it like i know that's gonna happen but um, I mean, I, it's not. I, I can't say that the first time I wasn't thinking like this guy. I mean, every time he nods off, you're like, "Oh no!" But yeah, but I, I just feel like they're 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 trying to follow the most realistic paths possible for all these different um, for all these different characters' arcs. I mean, God, and then Orlando like goes to visit. Yeah. D'Angelo at the pit later, Super like just, yeah, like, it's like uh. just showing his his face in that scenario is so, uh, so uh, um, stupid. Yeah, it's like his plot too. D'Angelo's like, what? He's like, yeah, I got these Jamaicans from New Orleans. Like, yeah, and D'Angelo's like, wait, what? 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 That's that sounds crazy. But I think okay. They also are setting up a actual event that that took place uh, in Little Melvin's organization that played a pretty big role in their demise as well. Uh, is that full spying on us? <laughs> <laughs> He's on the Google Hangouts saying like, "You guys better not be talking about me." <laughs> you guys talking about Breaking Bad? <laughs> <laughs> oh man wait goddamn hackers no he's just he's in the other room so he can hear hear me talking that's hilarious but what i was saying is i think that they're also trying to keep you know the parallel uh narrative afloat like i mean this is all grounded in real life historical events so d'angelo getting caught with the package and then you know i'll talk about it and the upcoming episodes like trying to keep a you know along the same themes as well so we'll we'll cross that bridge when it comes but it's not yeah like i'm just i realize i'm it's not even devil's advocate and the uh the things i try to like dig up oh is this like they're not even really salient points it's like you know, I'm talking about, is this lazy? And I bring up like the laziest arguments to try to unearth like lazy uh, writing or something. I should just shut up about this. But. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, Orlando's so funny. Like he just shows up in his like leather pants or whatever. Then Bodie's just like, what the f-? Like, God damn it. Like, yeah. Even Bodie like, knows that yeah. he's a joke. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, D would talk to a guy like this. Like, look, look at them. They're stupid. Yeah. 
but uh, you know d'angelo he's he's trying to be polite about it i guess he's just like um yeah i'll, I'll think about it yeah I'll think about <laughs> it. Um, but but yeah. even the fact like the fact that d'angelo is like even entertaining this guy's outlandish plot kind of shows his naivety and yeah. you know this <laughs> might be a even the fact that he's talking to him might be something that is going to lead to his downfall eventually. Exactly. Great point. So, but as we had mentioned, uh, D'Angelo's headed initially to the club to, yeah, meet up with Avon and Stringer because they're really perturbed about the turn of events and getting their package uh, intercepted and they're sure that there's a snitch. And that this is where I'll say, like, does D'Angelo maybe internalizing or, you know, realizing he shouldn't be entertaining Orlando's ideas lead to him maybe, like, he kind of has an outburst at the end of the uh, interaction where he's like, there's no snitch. Like, just believe me, I no one's... he And he mentions what the great points you had brought up about catching cast stealing... But he kind of, yeah. like, he he, uh, he doesn't he li- out anyone. He covers for them, yeah. Yeah. So he's like, I handled it. Uh, it was, yeah, so kind of, I, I thought of your insight. So what you're saying, it's really sticking with me. Uh, oh, thanks, thank man. You. Yeah. No, no, it's all good. What you're saying sticks, too. But I love, <laughs> I love this little, <laughs> I love this little, uh, this moment in uh wood harris's performance and like when d'angelo comes into the room he's just like who's snitching <laughs> it's like d'angelo closes the door like as soon as he closes the door it's like who's snitching yeah. <laughs> it's like re- automatically like interrogating him with such like gusto it's so great <laughs> i don't know wood harris man it's phenomenal um, i mean there's a what was it in uh all the pieces matter. One of the other actors like talked about his uh, like uh, his acting abilities, and they're like, "If you're gonna make a gangster movie yeah. or like <laughs> a a hood movie or whatever, Wood Harris is your go-to guy." Was like, it was it Idris Elba who was saying that? Like how he was uh, like, "Oh man, I gotta do this accent, and I'm a guy from London, and now I'm paired up with like the hood actor, like." you know whatever paid in full above the rim he's going like full mota we gotta watch that we gotta rewatch above the rim before game day yeah well it's like idris elba was on stage in london doing shakespeare yeah. so it's almost as if it, if macbeth. wood harris yeah if wood harris was playing to, banquo yeah. and macbeth with idris but, elba i know we had talked about an interview what harris did about you know an individual scene or all that crazy, uh, crazy stuff happening down uh, before the major pit entrance. But he was, yeah, I mean, he'll be the first to say, like, British actors are often better than, you know, I mean, it's Amer- tr- American. It's true. Yeah, like you said, they have that grounding in the classics or, you know. I think they, didn't they say, like, he Idris Elba had wrapped up Coriolanus in London or something oh, before? Okay. Or maybe it was on Broadway? I don't know. He was doing some Shakespeare before he he got Mick, he got Stringer Bell. Yeah, Luther man, still my favorite. Idris Elba. I still character. haven't seen. I still oh, haven't yeah. seen that. It's amazing. 
I mean, okay. Stranger's great, but I think, anyways. Um, I'm holding up this notepad. Well, no, there, I mean, I just have it here, like everything off the top, but no, <laughs> like I'm like I'm about to talk about something, but I don't, I don't actually remember. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the whole, uh, yeah, we gotta make a plan. Like, what the hell is going on here? Uh, eventually. Yeah, String goes to the pit and they, uh, I mean, they like String, like he knows, right? Like something's going on with the phones, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, kinda, that's why, that's yeah. why he instructs them to, yeah. to rip the phones out of the, rip but the pay phones the, out. Yeah, in that, in that moment up there, he's like, you could see the, whatever they do a close up, but then, like, yeah, you're, yeah, I'm, I'm, we're sucking the same thing, obviously, but I'm like getting like, defensive of my point like no man like he knew right then not four hours uh, later when he went to the pit to rip out the phone like it didn't he wasn't driving to the print shop and it was like oh the phone like, <laughs> you know, like he, he knows right then he's like motherfucking phones but yeah, he, he's like but leave any verizon phones alone like only oh my God. Those, those were regular pay phones they weren't verizon phones <laughs> He's like, I want to go talk on the phone. You got to walk down the block to the Verizon payphone. <laughs> I wonder if your conspiracy theory about the whole Verizon thing has any merit at all. No, that, I think, didn't we dead it like, yeah, last episode we're like, okay, that's just the phone in Baltimore in certain areas. But apparently the pit, they, Verizon's like, no, we're not, we're not going in there. Uh, you just have whatever. I mean, and it just shows that, uh, Stringer is not one to be outsmarted. He has the uh the the upper hand in this in this situation and is gonna throw the detail off of their game. So yeah. they're just they're just as organized as they are. And it immediately does. I mean it, it kills one of the wire like it kills it interrupts service on the on the details end. So we see Freeman displeased. Like, um, what? What I don't know. Have you ever uh, read this book called uh, Life, the Movie, How Entertainment Conquered Reality by Neil Gabler? No, no. Tell, tell me the, about it. Tell me about it. <laughs> but there's, there's an interesting like, theory that he has that like, people's character or characters in movies and TV kind of subconsciously shape the way people act in real life. Uh, with without us like ever like fully being cognizant of it like you know you get more dramatic like shutting the door on like in the middle of an argument with your wife because you might have like seen it in a movie or something and I oh. always <laughs> well, I'm just super sensitive and petty but <laughs> yeah. but like I I noticed like um, Idris Elba as like an acting choice as Stringer Bell he often like will put he'll fold his like hands behind his lower back in a lot of scenes. Uh, I mean, he does, he does it in the pit uh. and then I notice he does it, uh, later on when he's like talking to brother Muzone and just like the way he like, kind of like holds his hands behind his back, like gives him like this really big sense of authority. Um, that's like kind of unique to other actors or characters i've seen in a similar position of authority and i feel like i like sometimes adopt that 
as well like that little stance where i like put my hands behind my back i don't know maybe it makes my shoulders seem more broad or something yeah you and have like been seeming a lot more like powerful and uh, stoic <laughs> in our recordings i've been wondering what's so it's not it's not all p90x it's you're going full string it's like stringer power moves I think it's subconscious. I really do that. Like I saw, like some point I saw Idris Elba walking with his hands behind his back and <laughs> like, just... I might've, I might've thought to myself like, Hmm, maybe, maybe I should like try it. That's not, maybe that's a good look for me. I should try that. <laughs> yeah. I think you're almost, you're on your way to your own masterclass. If you keep this up, you know, <laughs> you'll be releasing it soon. Like, Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. Like a storyline taking the episode home or another main component is, well, the title, One Arrest, they're going after Bird, right? So they uh, they hatch a plan, but uh, is it they're talking to Daniels, right? Or they don't actually have any information on Bird. Uh, they just, I mean, they have Omar's testimony or his his offer to testify. They have the lady story, even though she couldn't really identify bird. Uh, they, they, you know, with those two pieces of information, they can surmise pretty much it was him. Uh, but yeah, they don't know where he lives. They don't know really anything about where to find him, just that he'll probably have the gun on him. Uh, and then Omar's really involved. Like I, I totally forgot. He was almost going like bubbles in the, in the back of the car down at the terrace. I mean, pretty bold he really is like just i don't care anymore at all like i mean i'm gonna get these guys one way or another you know and he's openly discussing it to the cops like either i'm gonna you know point him out to the to you the cops kima mcnulty or you know if they got a problem i'll just stick my shotgun in, in their <laughs> mouth he doesn't give a fuck i mean he's he's pit he's pissed off that uh they killed a, a a working man, as he says, and he's you know still like really heartbroken over his boyfriend's death. Do you, do you notice his little uh, notorious B.I.G. Uh, <laughs> shout out? Well, cause no, it, I don't. I didn't. Well, cause but it, you're cause the it, man for that. Well, he quotes the Ten Crack Commandments because uh, oh, he's yeah, talking yeah. about how Bird, you know, he actually gets high, but like he's not going to do it around Avon. And they're like, oh, yeah, he doesn't do it. And he's like, come on, never get high on your own supply. There like you he's go. quoting it the way Biggie said in that song, Ten Crack Commandments. Got it. I missed that. I missed the, uh, yeah, that, that reference. But it's pretty funny. Classic line. But yeah, he, uh, Omar's getting on his, uh, geo, uh, <laughs> <laughs> on his maps too. He's like, yeah, don't you know he likes to cop down on Carrollton? And that sent me, I was like, I'm going to find this freaking location when they go stake it out. Um, I totally was off in my initial uh, investigation because Carrollton Ridge is this neighborhood. Pretty interesting. It's similar to Pigtown in geographies just west of Pigtown and also kind of like another racially mixed uh, southwest Baltimore neighborhood. But it, I think it's named after uh, Charles Carroll, who was one of three Catholic, uh, I think it's three, but who signed the Declaration of Independence. And uh, there's this park down there called Carroll Park. Um, yeah, it's, I think the uh, Crenshaw Mafia brothers are 
you know, DeAndre McAuliffe, RC, and all those guys in the corner. They kind of set up, or like when uh, in the book, at least, they're talking about, oh, like down on Ramsey and Stricker, and they go play ball at the park. I, I don't know if it's Carroll Park, but it's definitely in that area. So it made me think of that, that whole thing. But yeah, the, this eventually the store where they go, uh, they go uh, set up, you know, to, to bust uh, Bird, and we see the uh, excellent disguise by Lester and and uh, yeah, Sidner. Clark, Pe- Clark yeah. Peters uh, <laughs> channeling his fat Kurt, channeling yeah. his inner fat Kurt. He's going full wino on the corner, and like I mean, crazy scene. But yeah, that's on the corner of Riggs and Carrollton Avenue. Uh, which which is up in uh, Sound, Sandtown, Winchester, so pretty much just north of, like, a little north, I guess, west of Lexington Terrace, Franklin Terrace, and Poe Homes and all that. Uh, I can't remember the exact address of the the shooting gallery. <laughs> it's all board. It's pretty much all boarded up. The, the store is for rent on the latest Google Earth shot where, where they go buy the drinks at. But, uh, yeah, pretty crazy scene. Uh, like pretty crazy yeah they just i mean well again police brutality i mean they know from omar that bird won't hesitate to uh just start shooting right if confronted but they're also going in plain clothes so like okay let's say bird were to start shooting i mean some guy in plain clothes just hit him over the head with uh you know, it's like a 40 or wine bottle. So uh, like, it's like a preemptive strike where, you know, obviously we're going to see much worse uh, example of police brutality. We'll discuss that here. But Yeah, this is a very controversial episode in light of this discussion that's happening now about police brutality, uh, definitely. And I know it, it turns a lot of people off this, from the this, show. Yeah, this yes. scene is... It's one of I the think, worst, right? Because I think so. I mean, yeah. Uh, man, Fredro Starr, he's, he's like just going. Like, I wonder how. Uh, but, uh, I mean, great, great acting here where he's just like, do you think, I mean, they, they gave him a script, obviously, but he's like just going full. Like, his insults are just, not, like, it's really in- insane. It's still like. I, I'm just wondering how the actors like Dominic West is probably like, oh my, like Jesus, yeah. like, <laughs> like eat shit, you downtown white whore. Like he just, I mean, Fredro, he's a, he's yeah, a, us, give us a little background. On he's Fredro a rap, Star. he's a rapper from Onyx, which is a, you know, rap group from the early nineties. And, uh, you know, you and I listen to some of their music. It's pretty like yeah, intense, I mean, it makes, scary stuff. Like yeah, like his those like like we had joked about uh one of those like get your guns or the one where they're just like displaying automatic firearms and stuff. A lot different than like the drill scene you see nowadays. Like it's it's pretty. I mean, they're both intense in their own ways, but I don't know, man. He just it's like the cause. Like this is back when rap actually scared white people you know <laughs> and it's like i, I could yeah definitely but, i mean the actors had to be kind of like man that's that's an he's just he's i he's mean he's not the biggest out. guy but he's going like his commitment level it's like he's almost in one of his like you know videos just going like man didn't they say in all the pieces matter yeah. that uh <laughs> they had to like keep like 
moving him around because he kept like smoking so much weed. <laughs> He's a party. They partied yeah. a lot season one. I mean, I'm sure they partied a lot, but yeah, all the different. And then he thinks that that's one of the reasons they kind of wrote him out or his character just like, because he was causing some, like the hotels and stuff where he stays, just smoking them out. I mean, he shows up again in season two, but uh, um, I mean, I, I also like wonder like, oh, maybe they were like all partying so hard in season one because they just assumed the show is going to get yeah, canceled. So, uh, uh, but back to the whole, yeah, I mean, the whole brutality angle. He obviously elicits a lot of uh, rage from, I mean, Lieutenant down to Kima. And you also made a comment like, how does he know that she's gay or she's Yeah, he's like, throw, he's like, you know, Super homophobic, throwing like, all kinds of like homophobic slurs. slang out of her. And is it like, is he just like saying that because she's a, like a female cop or does he like somehow know that she's gay? Like, I mean, we had talked about how you know, there were a lot more female, you know, lesbian, like it's more likely that a woman cop is like a lesbian. Obviously we talked about gay male cops being like few and far between, if any, especially at this time. But I mean, maybe it just assumes like there wouldn't be a chick tough enough or like to be down there with all the guys on like such an intense street level arrest, you know? But I think he's just assuming, like, oh, she must be a lesbian because she's, like, she's, I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, he's being super disrespectful. But it brings me back to the whole, uh, I mentioned, like, Simon's writing about police brutality and his whole take on that, discussing that from homicide and, like, some pretty uh, uh, statements surrounding that. Uh, but yeah, in that excerpt, there was also like codes for police brutality, which just the fact that those exist, and I think I alluded to those, uh, but yeah, the three things that essentially he laid out that were, you know, the unwritten rules of police brutality and homicide or the department was, uh, don't hit a man to elicit a confession don't be or hit someone who didn't deserve it, which is like pretty sure that was one of them. That's super vague and like, okay, obviously it's like a fallacy in its own right, but, and then, or arbitrary. And then the third, never hit a man who's cuffed. And that's like a huge thing in this where, you know, he knows what's going down because they obviously rip the photo of the pre, uh, you know, abuse, uh, pre, pre-police brutality uh, documentation. Um, so they could obviously take another one later after the beating. But yeah, he stands up. He's like, you know, I'm going to uncuff me. You're not, you're not going to give me a fair shot. And then, yeah, I mean, they just start beating him. So I assume they didn't actually, they didn't uncuff him. So it's kind of like, oh, that, yeah, they broke. Like, I mean, it sounds stupid. It's wrong to even say they broke a rule. There shouldn't be any, right? Uh, because they shouldn't be doing it regardless. But uh, also, I don't know what you had to say, but. Well, it's just interesting that the beating takes place off screen. Like we never, is Kima in the room too when they're all beating him up? I think, we, I, think we, I know it's Landsman because he's like talking about fat, you know. Yeah. And like Daniel's Landsman, obviously. <laughs> McNulty's yeah. not, is he? No, because no, McNulty. No, out, yeah. He's talk, he talks to Santangelo when he shows up. But, 
uh, it's interesting that Daniels is. <laughs> yeah, I think well, because we see like Kima getting physical throughout the show, and we see her, you yeah, know, beating people. Spody, yeah, I mean. <laughs> but like Daniels, it's interesting that we never see him getting violent on screen throughout the show. And this is like just a rare moment when it's off screen, we hear him beating the shit out of somebody. It's like a deliberate choice maybe by the director, Joe Chappelle. I'm not sure. It's like, we, we don't like, we have such a, uh, uh, how do I say this? We, we put Daniels on such a high pedestal that maybe, we don't even want to like see him like take part in such brutal tactics. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously gotten into some stuff before though, because he's like the, his ability in episode two to just right on the spot, like come up with the alternate set of events or facts. It's like okay, he's been around, like he knows, or someone schooled him, or he was involved in an incident similar, probably right. I mean, might be reaching, but yeah, they really beat beat Bird up. I mean, yeah, he's being a jerk, but I don't know. I guess they think he broke the code or whatever. So, I mean, but, the whole show is just lots of moral gray areas. So, oh yeah. Anyways, I wanted to talk a little about uh, a little bit about Bird. The whole fragile star thing, how how fierce he is, like and as a rapper, and like I obviously me being so out of touch with a lot of pop culture and especially like early like good hip hop that you you know show me a lot about like you know all the whole uh, Raekwon stuff and all that. Uh, I was just pretty much stuck to like uh, the radio. I mean, uh, for I'm, I know I've told my whole sob story, no cable and all that. Uh, but I know that we used to go over and like after school sometimes if we'd walk walk back down to my non-cable house like uh, Dance 360 was a huge uh, huge draw right for people like me and he was one of the hosts and it was such like a goofy crazy show with uh, <laughs> did we know this down who's the other co-host it's Kel right it had to be no Keenan yeah. no Keenan is the one that's on SNL right now right okay, good. so. And then Kel uh, is the other guy. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Obviously, like Nickelodeon, right? Cable. Tag him in. Yeah. Tag him in. Yeah, Dancing <laughs> Sixties, like most ridiculous dance contest. DJ K Slide, spin that, and like she would do the beat, and it's, yeah, like the whole chanting of the contest. It's just, and then I see some of his videos for Onyx. I'm like, God damn, he really. Yeah, he was going for that check. Yeah, well, it's like. <laughs> I mean, it's also like Ice Cube does a bunch of kids' movies now, too. So. Yeah, or, uh, yeah, just like I remember seeing that show and then a few years later watching Part of the Wire and then like five years after that actually watching, sitting down and watching the entire series like, wait, that's that's Fred Joe Star. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of, for me, not knowing his, uh, you know, rap career and how like, crazy you know and and real that whole thing was uh like having fredro star the dance 360 host as my reference point <laughs> I, i'm not gonna lie it, it took a little while where i'm like man look at him he's like trying to be so tough on the wire and like who is this guy like i don't you know it's it's like yeah, is he really this hard and then now what i know i'm like oh yeah geez yeah <laughs> you wish you never would have doubted his uh yeah his fierceness 
But oh yeah, so I had mentioned at the end of uh, episode five, or we had talked about the whole uh, like Odell's nightclub and Maurice Peanut King, the huge East Side drug kingpin, and how one of his most uh, hated rivals, his arch nemesis in the early eighties, uh, specifically nineteen eighty one, was Kenny Bird Jackson, who I think they you know borrowed they inspired Bird's name albeit Bird in the context of The Wire, much more minuscule character. When you consider the uh, real Kenny Bird, Jackson, who I'll, I'll get into a little bit here, uh, who was like a huge Baltimore uh, drug player and beyond. Uh, I'll talk, talk a little bit about um, you know, his, his involvement in the city. But yeah, I mean, like I had said he uh, got into a turf war in the Lafayette court projects on the east side in 1981. His, um, Kenny Bird's main, uh, his, his number two was named Walter Lewis Ingram, who was like his muscle. Um, and yeah, they got into it over, like I said, the territory. Little fun fact, Walter Lewis Ingram employed a, um, a guy named Walter Lee Powell as a bill collector and kind of like a, you know, just an everyday like handyman in his operation, and his his nickname was Stinkum, so kind of interesting. But uh, let's see here. Yeah, Kenny Bird. He yeah, like I said, huge player in the in the drug scene in Baltimore. He uh, between like the mid seventies and mid eighties, he escaped dozens of charges, like almost. Like in the forties, that's that's how many times he. So we're talking about the justice system. And it's like he's like suspended sentence for like manslaughter, got off on that technicalities, da 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 da. Um, pretty crazy. But I mean, I'll try to make this succinct. Um, he was also part of uh, Little Melvin's organization and was the only one really of uh, the high-ranking lieutenants or anyone of significance in that organization to elude capture on the real wiretap case. Uh, somehow got away there. Uh, and then also, yeah, had a role after that um, in Baltimore politics. So he donated money to... Uh, finance, like campaigns, political campaigns, Kurt Schmoke, the mayor. Um, and he also owned a strip club called El Dorado's, which was on East uh, Lombard Street in East Baltimore. Uh, and then as he tried to become more established in downtown Baltimore nightlife, it, it was just met with a lot of, uh, you know, resistance from, from the city, uh, even though he did have his connections because of his criminal background. Um, uh, and in those dealings of like liquor board stuff and all the administrative, you know, the, bureau- the bureaucracy, red tape, what have you, he was represented by a lawyer named George Russell Jr. He was like probably one of the most prolific lawyers in Baltimore history, say Thurgood Marshall. He was the first black city solicitor, got appointed in the uh, late 60s by Thomas D'Alessandro, who we talked about, Nancy Pelosi's brother. Uh, George Russell Jr. also. Um, was the first uh, black lawyer from a black firm to merge with the top white uh, law firm in Baltimore, um, Piper and Mawberry. So, yeah, he just like was a huge trailblazer um, for a lot of black lawyers, and then just yeah, one of the most famous and and uh, well-regarded lawyers in general in Baltimore history. Um, 
and yeah, represented Kenny Bird, I guess, discounted his uh, past uh, legal transgressions. But yeah, Kenny Bird then also donated, like, I think at one point, three point five, like $3,500 to Lawrence Bell's um, city council campaign. So Lawrence Bell, who was like, he motivated Anthony Gray, who we see is like Carcetti's uh, main man until they run against each other. So kind of the parallel between Lawrence Bell and Martin O'Malley, who were buddies in the political scene up until the 1999 election. Yeah, so it's like, oh, politics inspired Stringer. Oh, no. But um, anyways, uh, not getting sidetracked here. Let's see. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Kenny Bird, he... <laughs> This is great. He he actually uh, even established a political action committee. Um, it was, and it was it was to help those who had been uh, disenfranchised or weren't able to participate in the yeah political process. Yeah, it was called. Uh, title of it was Justice, Unity, Integrity, Choice, Equality. So he, he had a he had a juice pack. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, he was like, just he was able to seamlessly, uh, unlike Stringer, I guess, uh, merge from the crime, you know, drug world of Baltimore into politics, where he'd be like the only former gangster in the, you know, the party with only politicians. Uh, And then even recently, he's still at it. Like, I guess he was still at it doing the whole nightclub strip club thing in Baltimore. He was implicated by a witness and some other crime um who provided testimony that sergeant wayne jenkins of the gun trace task force was allegedly going to rob kenny bird for some drugs or something that like stored at his house and kenny bird was just like he wouldn't get past my highly trained dogs and i don't (laughs) i don't mess with rats so don't believe that person who's like trying to snitch me out in court so pretty crazy pretty crazy guy but you know, kind of like how we see Simon use names and stuff, but you know, obviously, the characters that he draws a lot of these from have like it, it varies the uh, significance in the uh, relative world that they existed in. But just found found that interesting. I mean, Kenny Bird also had ties to Larry Young, who we had talked about, uh, kind of you know, loose composition for Clay Davis, but good stuff. Well, when we talked about earlier how Santangelo admitted to McNulty, there's a nefarious plot by Rawls going on. Um, Omar and Bunk have a little yeah, back did, and forth. I wanted to talk about that. Like, uh, sorry to cut you off, but no, Omar's okay. just there. Like, uh, he's not far from the office, uh, kind of just yeah, hanging out with Bunk. So at this point, I mean, he doesn't even care if Bird sees him because <laughs> he's going to see him in court anyways, I guess. But I guess so. Is it, like the timing and placement of that is that, in, I mean, it's intentional, obviously. No, but we do learn that, uh, we learn that Omar and Bunk uh, went to yeah. high school together. <laughs> Old Edmondson. It's just like uh, West Side High School, but it, yeah, it's farther out. Uh, like we had talked about, you know, how they had taken the trip, uh, Stinkum and Stringer to scare off Scar down Edmondson, but it's like way west. I think it's going out towards Edmondson Village, which is almost, it's like a more, uh, or at least once was like a sleepier portion of West Baltimore, like almost headed towards, you know, the parks like Gwynn Falls, like Lincoln Park, like south of there, but 
Yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely much more west than like all the areas we see Omar operating in at the present. So yeah, and know, they had a l- I mean they yeah. had a l- they had a lacrosse team. Yeah, <laughs> they were able yeah, to bunk. Have- bunk the lacrosse star, making the uh, prep school white boys like shit their pants. <laughs> uh huh. So yeah, I mean lacrosse, we don't really know too much i mean west coast like certain areas have it like uh you know i mean i remember uh (laughs) i mean our high school no way no (laughs) that was way too preppy but i remember like knowing some kids from pleasanton california that went to amador high school that were like some girls were talking about like the hot lacrosse guys that went to their school and was like whoa that world is so far removed from me i mean you know i don't want to like it's a really cool sport and it's like got a lot of like it's kind of been co-opted as it's like you think of lacrosse you think of like east coast prep like duke and all that you know but it's really like a native american game right it started up in like the uh uh iroquois like up on uh syracuse outside of like syracuse university up there the own i think onondaga uh nation yeah, they're huge. Like, nat- there's this really crazy. Uh, I don't know if it's frontline, but it's like uh, they follow a native uh, young young man and his team, and they're competing. And they're you know, it's like derived. They would play it like distance, like village to village up there. Like you know, back when it first originated. So yeah, huge. But yeah, I know. I did not know that. It, it's a. I mean, yeah, it's a tough. Sp- I mean, it seems fun. I would have. I would have probably liked to. But yeah, like you said, our not the facilities for for that or i mean our high just culturally our high school even like let the the pool go to waste (laughs) we didn't even have have a viable swim team um Uh, well i knew people who swim i mean they just had to go to uh it's like want to play sport uh cal state i think uh okay that's right yeah it's like want to do this sport well the facilities for it are actually somewhere else like <laughs> yeah, we uh, didn't even have a football field huh uh, yeah, they, uh, they, they had, had to go, go to the adult school <laughs> they had to go to the old high school with the lights which like apparently elicited uh angry letters to ncs like i felt threatened while we were out in the parking lot before the game we didn't have a locker room <laughs> the field was like lumpy and had weird uh, angles to it and potholes like they're like oh well we won <laughs> the, the bart train <laughs> it was loud it's ridiculous group of men at the house on the corner were yelling things from the yard it's like yeah well you look stupid you know good times but uh so yeah then after that uh we see mcnulty go to pearlman to uh yeah what the- He's just really sad that uh, he realizes that they're they're trying to get rid of him. Yeah, yeah, he's going to take my badge. And then Perlman's just like again on a weeknight, uh, the man of no like uh, awareness. It's like he's in uh, pandemic mode where you're like, what day is it? Oh, it's Thursday. Okay, cool. But he just said like it's another what Tuesday night, and he's like, or is it Wednesday morning? Yeah, <laughs> he's like, mm, I'm not drunk. No. And then she's like, come on in. Like, see, is she, I mean, she, you know, she has a soft spot for Jimmy, even though he's a, well, he's a jerk. I mean, I mean, he's totally, I mean, 
he's really upset about what's going on, but he's also playing the sympathy card at this moment. (laughs) Yeah. She's like being like kind of, they probably didn't even have sex. She was just like being a sympathetic, like nurturing force to him. Aside from like bunk and some bars, like, I mean, he doesn't really have, like he, he doesn't have any friends really. It doesn't seem like, or anywhere to go except his like dingy little apartment with no furniture, nothing, just... Okay, everyone. I I realize I made a huge gaffe last episode when discussing a rapping and one of the most prolific a rappers in Baltimore, who was nicknamed Bubbles. I had made a little joke like, "Oh yeah, I wonder if Larry Johnson and Possum uh, ran into Bubbles, you know, when he was out there a rapping and Larry Johnson Possum was out there singing, but." Essentially, they're, they, <laughs> Bubbles is Larry Johnson. <laughs> if I, if, I mean, God, this is, yeah, this is really bad. Like, my, any credibility I have here, it's like, uh, like I told you, when I realized that, <laughs> going back through Truth Be Told and read the whole profile on Bubbles, like, yeah, he was known as Bubbles in Baltimore, Possum in New York, and to the cops, Larry Johnson. I'm like, all these facts here, Willie, that, I, that I've tried to memorize for this episode to, to make things sound credible and, you know, like we're really giving it our best go. I'm just, like, tempted to just, uh, who cares? Like, I, I can't get that right. Like, I'm a fraud. I'm a hack. But in the articles I read, written by David Simon, about Larry Johnson Possum, nowhere in there is it referenced, like, bubbles. So, and then... The timeline of the whole A-Rabbing thing, the guy they were interviewing, who was named Sonny in 1991, who got started 30 years prior, said at that time, like the most established guy was named Bubbles, right? But that would have meant that Larry Johnson, that means that he's even more impressive. Like as he was becoming a junkie, apparently he started doing drugs, Larry Johnson, Possum, we want to call him Bubbles, at like 15, right? He started doing heroin. So that means if he was born in 44, in the 60s, he would have been like 16, 17, 18, right? Uh, if, it, if, it, if like that was the actual timeline 30 years prior to 1991. So how is this guy starts doing heroin and at the same time as like the huge, like the most prolific A-rabber? I don't know. And then, like I said, Rafael Alvarez, or the editor of Truth Be Told, they misspelled the title of episode five. They called it the pages, not the pager. So... If they would have spelled that right, I'd be like, okay, I'm completely wrong. But they lost a little credibility, so I'm like, should I believe everything written in this book now? I mean, I should, but Rafael Alvarez wrote this episode too, even though we found some coincidences. Seems like a solid guy, great writer, wrote like every episode on every episode of season two, you said? Yeah, I think yeah, so. at least he was on the staff for every episode of season two because he had the familial connection to the docs. I mean, I'm probably gonna get shredded for this like wait just wait for the lemon street chump mail about this guy i feel really silly that's all i'm trying to say it's all good we're you know we're working through this <laughs> um but anyways yeah that was kind of soul crushing like god damn yeah you think you're slick like wow bubbles the a-rabber literally in episode two we could isolate that yeah larry johnson also was an a-rabber like god damn it Thanks for hearing me out. This was a bit cathartic. Like I'm, I'm trying out there. I'm trying out there. All right. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed that.
right. And if you like what you hear, please uh, like and subscribe on any podcast platform that you're listening to this on and leave us a nice review. Uh, you could find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes, and I also wanted to give a shout out to my guy, Mostart, who allowed us to utilize some of his original music for our intro and outro. Yeah, and then we have Andre Tesnis, who did uh, the artwork for our logo. Really great graphic design work there. Yes, indeed. And of course, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, maybe uh, a fact check for this guy here, <laughs> uh, please don't hesitate to, uh, you know, give us a shout out. If it's kind, you know, all the better. If not, we'll roll with it. Uh, you can reach us at thegodswillnotsaveyou at gmail.com. And also, you know, if you have any spare change lying around and you feel like you can support us... Uh, Even in a we coin have, shortage? <laughs> we have two uh, monthly supporters right now, oh, yes. and one of them is our uh, mother's is mutual friend, so we want to... <laughs> have her joined by some some nice company yeah thank you so much uh you know we'll leave her name out of this yes. but uh she's very sweet um but if any of you want to become monthly donors you could reach us at anchor.fm slash the gods will not save you slash support uh we have a donation link up on the social media website so please uh you know please give us some money i mean okay <laughs> we get i mean that's greatly appreciated but hey you know these baltimore sun subscriptions where we mine all these great details even if you know i might not be always delivering them pat uh you know these things aren't free and uh keeps great content coming your way so anything helps uh we understand everyone's situation out there it's a difficult time but uh yeah Thanks for listening and supporting.